Hello, and welcome to episode 346 of The Crate and Crowbar, being recorded on the 28th of October 2020. I'm Marsh Davis, and I'm joined by... Chris Thurston. Yay! Yay. It's just us. Like the old days. Tom's ill. Yeah. Which is sad. It's sad, because I prepared a whole quiz for you guys, and I'd even got new stings for correct and incorrect answers. Would you like to hear the stings for correct and incorrect answers? Desperately. Here's a correct answer. No, actually, answer a question as though it was correct. What's your name, Chris? Tom. <laughs> I don't know which button to press now. <laughs> Let's pretend yeah. that was a correct answer. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> All right, ask me another question. Um, uh, what, what, what's your favourite kind of dog? Uh, poodle. <laughs> That was an incorrect answer, Chris. <laughs> Incredible. I don't think these these sound effects... I mean, obviously, like, we've had the soundboard in the background for a lot of these remote pods, and I think used it incredibly sparingly, given what a shit show this could have already become. <laughs> and so it's... But it's, it's creeping presence, I think, is inevitable. And ultimately, I don't think that such quality addenda are necessarily to be restricted to a segment, although they Indeed. probably should be. Quality pudenda. I agree completely. Um, <laughs> to the tune of Eleanor Rigby. Um, <laughs> wow, that's a that's a beautiful tune. Shall we talk about some news? Yeah. Ow, um, ow, there's... fuck. Oh, sorry. Okay. I just hit myself in the tooth with my own teacup. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I'll stop doing that now. Are you, is your teeth okay? Are they safe? I'm fine. I'm honestly fine. Okay. Because um, you're going to need your teeth for the for this. Um, you're not going to need your teeth. <laughs> Get your teeth I mean, into well, some be... news. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Actually, I'd, I've chosen to gum the news <laughs> in order to subdue it. Oculus now requires a Facebook account. Uh, uh-huh. And if you delete your Facebook account, it also deletes all your Oculus games. That's bad, isn't it? Is that bad? That is bad, yeah. Yeah, it is. It, um, it's bad. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a whole bunch in this. It's bad. It's bad for the individual. It's bad for the collective in its kind of weird antitrust kind of ramifications. I did see some people compare this to, well, if you delete your Steam account, you lose all your Steam games. But I think the key difference is a Steam account is a, is a relatively monopurpose thing in its scope and oh. also relatively... N- not not particularly hungry for your for your broad personal information. I don't I don't necessarily know everything that Valve tracks. I know that they obviously do hardware surveys and things like that, but it doesn't seem like the intent of Steam is to plug into every aspect of your life and who you communicate with and what where you've mm. been on holiday and what you've said in your living room recently and whether you're having a baby or all the you know things that yeah. go on there. Makes me feel a little yeah. weird because I just obviously bought into this ecosystem, but deliberately got a Rift S because it doesn't require Facebook integration. They're not going to retrospectively patch that in in some way, are they? But is that, is said, that impossible given the technology that exists? Or I don't think so. I don't think it's impossible because it's basically just whether it lets you log in or not. And I think there's some additional functionality in the new headsets that does make the Facebook stuff inevitable. The thing I know about this, which which does genuinely suck, is it means that like 2023 rolls around, my Rift is going to stop working. My gamble is that by the time 2023 rolls around, I will have had 
my 400 pounds worth of entertainment from it and likely would be looking to move on to something higher spec anyway right um, yeah. given the average shelf life for this tech like i don't if it lasts me three years or they'll or thereabouts then that's a decent return i think for what it is obviously we're in the domain of luxury toys here but with that yeah. in mind and so um which because it is a shame because i think that like in and of itself the rift hardware is is definitely i think the most user-friendly balance of does high-end vr stuff but doesn't have the logistical faff of either the index or the vive and that it doesn't require you to redesign a room all the rest of it and i really really love mine i think it's a great piece of technology i'm really glad i own it and so the sort of specter of what else facebook would like it to be just seems wildly uh a wild wildly ashamed can you be wildly ashamed can you be wildly ashamed <laughs> Uh, but like, I think also because there's such niche pieces of technology still like VR is not going to be something that's in everybody's home for a long time, I suspect. And so it feels very mismatched with something as ubiquitous as Facebook. Yeah. It's an interesting mixture of, uh, announcements coming up from Facebook about gaming because they've also launched their streaming service, um, which is beginning mm. its rollout in parts of America, I believe, but it's, their, their sort of their pose for their their streaming service is so completely different from what they're doing with Oculus in that it's I mean specifically targeting a completely different range of games it's it's going for latency tolerant free to play sports or card games a kind of very familiar mobile gaming fair and um a lot, of, a lot of the the sort of uh, the way it's been presented by Jason Rubin, incidentally, who who's formerly uh, founder of Naughty Dog, who's now mm. I think Facebook's games wizard. I don't know what their, his actual title is, but he he says things like he's constantly downplaying the technology. He'd rather uh, he, he says we won't over deliver. Sorry, we won't over promise and under deliver. We, we're not trying to replace your favorite gaming hardware. We're not promising 4K 60 FPS, so you pay us 6.99 a month. We're not trying to get you to buy a piece of hardware like a controller. And there's no premium games. There's no no exclusives. He, he thinks that exclusives may some at some point happen, but mm. then they're, they're not something that they're aiming for. Um. And he said, you know, we're not trying to lock people in. We don't need to because we're not charging a fee to try these games. And you're on Facebook already, so, which is <laughs> which is interesting because they are trying to lock people in and <laughs> to Facebook. It's just that they, yeah. in his, his way of phrasing that, he excluded Facebook as being the prison, uh, which it obviously <laughs> is. Um, mm. But yeah, it's just, it's weird. I'm not quite sure who, who this was aimed at, whether it was designed to sort of uh be in contrast to google stadia or stadia uh, and the way that they've announced things and the way that they're pursuing mm. i don't know uh, I, yeah it doesn't really i don't think it's going to impinge on the industry as you and i experience it because it is geared towards you know um boomer fodder <laughs> games basically mm. um it's sort of interesting that they're even sort of branding it separately or considering this a separate marketing pitch because a lot of what you've just said amounts for like well we're not going to try and sell it to you you know what i mean we don't have to mm. we could just put a bunch of free games on facebook and lots of people will play them and that will increase the value of facebook in their minds and more of them will stick around on average over the thousand years that we're planning to rule the world and <laughs> and like 
you know, it's good, isn't it? Like, it, this is the thing. This is why it's so strange that they would kind of take these hard, these heavy-handed tactics with the VR audience because I just, it, it feels like the amount of people who are really super into VR and want that hardware who would be put off by this is pretty big. Um, but also the overall audience just can't be that important to Facebook in the grand scheme of things. Because as you say, they they are concerned with making sure your dad doesn't leave, not you. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, given that their assumption is that everybody has Facebook already, I mean, that's... Yeah. I don't know, yeah. And, you know, and the way they're getting it, like, their pursuit of a younger audience tends to happen through other apps entirely, like Instagram, right? Like, and and it's not like... You know, I could argue, I could see the case for them maybe saying we need to mark, we need to reposition Facebook towards younger people because it's become overwhelmingly the domain of the old. But that's not this either. So yeah, it's just sort of it's sort of strange to me. I think that they would even position it as a distinct service if it has none of those points of friction <laughs> that would define it as such. Yeah, you know. Yeah, it's just I feel like every uh, nobody's making products anymore. They're just making a funnel towards their services. Uh, I, I, I felt I feel like that's going to distort the incentives, which actually mm. underpin the design of games in a in a, in a nefarious way. I, I could sort of not not especially relatedly, but tangentially relatedly. Ubisoft has relaunched UPlay as Ubisoft Connect. And this seems to be twinned with not the removal of Ubisoft games from Steam, but um, the uh, ongoing, for, henceforth reluctance to sell games on Steam that are Ubisoft games. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that's going to endure or whether at some point they will come back to Steam like they did after Uplay. It's, it's a strange kind of elastic twanging that ubisoft seemed to be doing with its uh its policy regarding steam yeah it's 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 funny because like obviously you talk about the effect of this stuff so i think it's also so it's ubisoft connect but there's also ubisoft plus um i think as well which is the same thing but on stadia i might be wrong about that but what was kind of interesting about this from ubisoft's point of view is i wonder if in that case it might actually encourage a more diverse span of experiences from them because when they're charging such a premium for access to a kind of selection of games they are competing with things like ea's equivalent microsoft game pass and things like that which seems like much better value one of the reasons they seem like much better value is to get a variety of experiences because ubisoft's AAA development model at least is built around generating a big box you know 60 quid uh, game for stores every Christmas, pretty much, right? Like yeah. their model is built to get you an Assassin's Creed scale game every year. And that leads to a lot of the similarities in design language, although obviously some of the things that were kind of came out recently indicated that also might have a kind of cultural basis as well. But, you know, broadly speaking, it's an industry built to kind of uh, produce something that is perceived to have a certain amount of value and therefore can command a certain price within the a particular marketplace. And but if are they, they not creating the marketplace where that is not going to be feasible anymore? Exactly. That's what I mean. Oh, I'm like, sorry. <laughs> you know, but that's what I mean, because like yeah. that, 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 you know, the, that ceases to be the goal. Like, why would I pay £150 a year, which is what this amounts to, um, if the focus of that is all going to be on this year's big Assassin's Creed once a year, right? Like from Ubisoft's mm-hmm. point of view, maybe it does make sense because now they're getting 150 quid from people rather than the 60. But 
me the me the consumer which is how i like to think about myself um <laughs> like what like why would i do that <laughs> you know what i mean yeah. what's in it for me unless i'm getting like more smaller games or uh you know a regular drip feed of things i actually want to play and it, it just it doesn't feel kind of like quite fleshed out enough in my mind that there's enough in that catalog to justify that cost um yeah. particularly given the price of alternative services with more yeah on. i have a feeling it'll stagger on for a, a year or two and either ubisoft themselves will decide it's unviable and then come back to steam again as they did before with Uplay. yeah or it will ultimately uh involve the sort of a, a rethink about the kinds of games that they make altogether um yeah it feels like a big bet for them to reconfigure their whole thing in order to make this a success you know yeah given that there are the, all the other reasons why it might not work yeah, although, I mean, the spiralling costs of those AAA games themselves may also cause the industry as a whole to sort of pull back somewhat mm. on those big tentpole releases. Um, but right. I, I, don't, I don't know that Ubisoft would be the, the company to do that. I think it's probably going to you know, sort of eat the uh, eat away at the, the tier beneath them and the big tentpole releases will be left to the kind of uh, uh, the your Call of Duties and your, your Assassin's Creed's maybe. Mm. Yeah. Don't know. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Assassin's Creed's coming to Netflix as a TV series as well. I did see that. Yeah. This is what the third time there's been a go at Assassin's Creed as a live action thing. Is that right? What was, was, the, this... what was the first one? The, the first one, there was the Fastbender movie. Yeah. That was actually made. I was sure there that was, was the... another thing that was. Maybe I'm wrong. Mm. Maybe this is the second. Hmm. No, maybe it is. Did the you. How would you rate the chances of it being not absolute crud? <laughs> so recently, um, we've been watching a show on Netflix called Warrior Nun, um, which uh, is huh? based on a, a, a based on a Canadian manga, um, which is to be sung to the tune of Lenny Kravitz's "American Woman," um, and <laughs> and and it's awful, but I find it quite quite a lot quite fun and i'm kind of glad that netflix is able to just generate weird bargain basement buffies from a different universe where <laughs> and um it, it is really not a very good show at all but it's kind of fascinating in how weird it how how bad it is like just very strange um decisions it is essentially like a record playing kind of hero's journey thing but it gets to the uh, rejecting the call part of the journey and just skips basically for an entire season <laughs> right just a just a woman saying i don't want to be a warrior nun for 10 hours the reason i say this is because i think there's actually precedent in netflix's ecosystem for like very schlocky action adventure yeah it's and... become qu quite the place for sort of uh what i think of as as, as turbo trash uh yeah. which used to be basically what stars made that channel mm. stars it's like the, the natural successor of Spartacus Blood on the Sand is is The Witcher and uh, mm. uh, and perhaps this. Well, that's things. the thing is I really enjoyed The Witcher I think because it occupied the exact midpoint between Game of Thrones and like Hercules, basically right, yeah, yeah. or Xena, and like I missed that kind of camp, you know, made for TV fantasy. I think, and mm. actually it was refreshing after Game of Thrones sort of. Um, shut the bed as spectacularly as it did to see something come along without those pretensions without that kind of tiresome 
mystery yeah. box kind of you're never going just, to be disappointed yeah. in it because no. it's no, <laughs> never going to aim that high <laughs> and this is so this is the thing that's interesting about an assassin's creed series the premise of assassin's creed and all of its time wibble gene time travel ancestor bollocks mm. um, templars and nonsense is like crime like mystery box abrams lindelof kind of danger zone if they wanted to go mm. in that direction right they could they could make westworld with that premise to some extent and I really hope they don't. Like, I think I think the best fate for it would be to embrace its kind of B movie truth and be just kind of like beautifully <laughs> shot on location, serious European actors intoning about complete bollocks. Mm. Because there is there is something to be said for that. I think, like, which um, British character actor would you get to play a space pope? A space pope. Um, hmm. Hmm. I mean, I don't know that Michael Gambigan can pull off a uh, an Italian accent, to be honest. No, I'm trying to think who. I don't know whether you go for like. The thing is, all of this has been done. I was just thinking, like, you could go for like the dastardly young hot pope, um, which has been done in both Medici and the young pope and the young pope, indeed. Um, oh God, who played the who played the high sparrow in Game of Thrones? Oh, that, oh yes. Ah, oh, fuck. That guy. That guy uh, who's in everything. Um, but, like, the problem is, like, it's the same role again. I just kind of want to see him in a fist fight. Jonathan uh, Price. Jonathan there you Price. Go. <laughs> the good thing about it, and this is maybe the, to bring it back to the Ubisoft thing, is we're all kind of just paying for a Netflix subscription just to make sure that when you switch on the PlayStation, there's something to do, you know? Like... And so this thing, whenever it arrives or doesn't, will just essentially be a free deposit of entertaining lights and shapes. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Welcome to the culture of uh, 2020 and onwards. Lights yeah. and shapes, the best yeah. we can hope for. Indeed. I tell you what, one of the, thing, the things that most delighted me recently in, in, in terms of uh, media uh, entertainments was uh, not a game, but also kind of a game. But it was the 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 tour, the three D tour yeah. of that Blue Lick Road House in Kentucky uh, that went super viral. Uh, I just that was that was great, and people were turning it into a game by creating scavenger hunts, and and people were uh, speed running it. <laughs> I, mean, yeah, I don't you... know that the way I approached it was a game. It was a bit like an arg, almost, I suppose. Yeah, if it feels like a horror game. So what this is is like a you know virtual camera tour of a a house, which begins as like wow this is just a really shit house, and then enters this sort of like bizarre other world when you realise that it's extensive basement. Although by the time you've gone up and down so many stairs, you've forgotten where you are. Is being used. I think they were an Amazon reseller, weren't they? So it's just I believe so. Yeah, massive poorly organized storage of like cultural debris basically like thousands and thousands of doc martin dvds <laughs> yeah like a whole robe apparently dedicated to like mel gibson's movie summer city like just <laughs> complete like and some combination of like the kind of but also it had like the deep malaise of like there's a i forgot what it was there was a subreddit a while ago i think it's a combination of there's a subreddit that was dedicated to like the 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 flats of single men 
right? Where it's like <laughs> a single stained sofa cushion on a floor next to an Xbox 360, a pizza box, and a beautiful television. <laughs> um, and a combination of that, and there's like, there was a, I think it was a, maybe even been a something awful board ages ago for people who desperately thought they could build their own houses in various parts of the American Midwest, but definitely couldn't. And the kind of awful, cursed kind of architectural decisions they would make. Combination of those sorts of things. Um, and then this sort of um, pop culture hell pit. It was very compelling. <laughs> it was very compelling. Like I, I sent it to um, my friend Paul Canavan, who I'll never mention again because we've been playing games together this week that I'll talk about later. But um, um, And he, he sort of looked at it for a moment and then was like, I found the cat. I'm done with this. And I was like, my friend, your journey has not begun like indeed you know he compared it to the cave of wonders from aladdin and i kind of liked that comparison <laughs> <laughs> like touch nothing but the doc martin dvd <laughs> <laughs> like i will be annihilated in some kind of tap subsidence well it didn't look very stable i mean you could be buried under a, a huge tottering tower of girls gone wild dvds if you weren't yeah. careful yeah. yeah it also reminded me of like i don't know have you ever been to hay on why no, actually, no. Beautiful the little book town. festival place. Yeah. Um, and they that, that is a town that is absolutely stuffed with these beautiful little book shops, which are each kind of completely overloaded with books, so that going around any of them is like exploring that place, but for quite nice books. And this did feel like it's sort of kind of garish transatlantic cousin to that experience. You know, like it doesn't smell good. You're not getting to get the waft of kind of musty paper at all right like it's just like a deep under under sort of layer of like monster energy and then dead rats and then doc martin <laughs> <laughs> yeah that yeah. was good that was, good. <laughs> that was the, the game of the week. my week <laughs> yeah <laughs> I also enjoyed the, uh, the the quiz today on the NYT, which uh, got you to guess based on pictures of people's fridges, whether they were Trump or Biden voters. Um, and the conclusion was you can't really. <laughs> uh, like statistically, there was there was it was it was fifty fifty chance either way, according to most people. But it was interesting to see um, to to do it uh, on on the basis of the few items in people's fridges that I could actually recognise as a British person because obviously I'm not that au fait with American brands. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, to interrogate my own prejudices as to what is uh, you know what might be considered well i mean not not even like uh mass market versus um highfalutin i mean because i don't really know that that's exactly how the the populist divides on political lines but this it's, it's quite it was quite interesting to kind of think get in your head look at a look at a picture of some cool whip and then try and work out which which uh, different demographics that intersects with right um, it's interesting that that attempt to create a quiz kind of sounds like it failed though and it didn't deliver a kind of particularly comprehensive result because i think maybe this is a bit real but like it feels like so much of our politics are built around the idea that those divisions in political camps are absolute and kind of reach so deep into people's lives that you would be able to tell from the fridge right but isn't that i think that it's good it's, that it didn't yeah no, that's what i mean way. it's good that it right. failed like it, it's good right, yes, that that's yeah. not actually possible that like yeah. you know that the even as divided as, as things can often feel and be that it doesn't, it isn't that easy that like what, you know, that the, you know, 
what Facebook knows about your fridge couldn't be used to determine your political leaning necessarily although apparently cool whip is a pretty solid indicator of being a jump (laughs) (laughs) i think if you keep coffee in your fridge as well that's that's a a slam dunk for the blue team don't america does don't americans just do that though it's like eggs in the fridge they love their eggs but they love putting eggs eggs in the fridge is the other thing it's a necessity i think because they they um they they spray pressurized disinfectant at the eggs in order to get off the the muck on the outside uh such that the the, the shell of the egg is thinned sufficiently that they're more prone to um infection so you need to Is that the true? I, it's something I read, Chris. <laughs> no, that's really interesting because I always wondered why American eggs were like perfect white as well whereas our eggs are like various colors and sometimes covered in poo. Yeah, I think that might be why. Huh. I like my poo eggs. I like my poo eggs as well. <laughs> warm poo eggs. <laughs> room, te- room temperature poo egg to the tune of <laughs> Eleanor Rigby. <laughs> uh, um, speaking of uh, cyberpunk. <laughs> Some news there. I think there. your segue just ran over my foot there. <laughs> As it bounced down the stairs of the hell house, clattered into a plant, clattered into a stack of I don't know vintage country albums and Betty Boop dolls, and swallowed (laughs) me whole. Yeah, goodbye cyberpunk. Do you think it'll make it this year? Do you think they'll actually? Yeah. So, so the news here, if you didn't already know, is that cyberpunk has been delayed from a couple of weeks from now to uh, it's been delayed about three weeks into December. A fact um, of which uh, the devs learnt only only when it was announced to the public, mm. um, which is so, a cool thing to do. Cool. <laughs> it's pretty chill. Um, the, I mean, one thing about this is that um, the game had gone gold, and so the some from reading around a bit, the thing that seems to make sense to me. This is a total reckon. I want to preface this by putting hanging the big sign on this marked. This is a complete reckon rather than a fact. Um, is that the 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 rumor that was going around was that the the developers were basically crunching on a like a patch anyway, and probably would have been into December. So it sounds like there was the intent to put out an update in early December, and I wonder if the decision was made to essentially just call that the release day mm. um, to oh, sort of yeah. conflate the gold version of the game and its first significant update into a single thing in the hopes of making a better first impression. That seems like the the only way this makes sense as a such an eleventh hour delay. Well, I mean, they could have I mean, they could have discovered something game breaking in the gold code that that's is, that is just going to take them time to fix. I guess that is yeah. true, and it does coincide with the you know they were aiming to kind of coincide with the the next gen consoles. So I wonder if to what extent that had been a date that was sort of out of their hands. I think it, you know it's mm. it's such a kind of. A strange situation to observe and i think obviously we've got professional reasons to observe it um and i think there's you know it there's a ton going on there there's been a ton going on there in terms of hmm. you know the the making of that particular sausage um I, looking at the community reaction has been interesting because 
like any, even despite their millions and millions and millions of followers and the massive following, they have regulars in their replies like anybody else does. And there is something about watching the same people who said, you know, hey, screw you, I'm never going to play this, when they first delayed it, say that the second time, and now again this time, and will almost certainly be the same people showing up when it does actually come out to say, hey, why isn't it downloading fast enough or something, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. I do... I do wonder at the as as kind of kind of bad as this feels and as as um as sort of like much as it makes you kind of look sideways at it and go like oh something's happening there I I just doubt whether this will materially affect the game's chances of success at all given the momentum that it has Oh I'm sure, I'm sure it won't really yeah. I, uh, and I, it doesn't it doesn't affect um my desire to play it i mean uh, it does it does make me worry about the uh the the poor developers is they, if they're yes on a protracted death march towards release which is which is obviously very bad for them yeah but, you know i really hope I, yeah i hope this isn't three three week extension to crunch and is a that's why i was kind of thinking of it the other way where is this a rebranding of crunch that was happening anyway i should caveat that that doesn't mean that crunch is good <laughs> it's just yeah, yeah, the, the, yeah. the scenario that i really fear for those developers is one where they were expecting to get to stop at a certain point and now they've been told that they can't yeah but yeah i do it's going to be fascinating to see the reaction that game gets because it is such an absurd amount of hype, and I do wonder that it'll be possible. And like any game that wanders into that sort of life sim, live out a kind of sci-fi fantasy thing, I do wonder at the impossibility of it actually fully living up to that. Um, yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, Watchdog. I mean, Watchdogs is a game with probably l- lower expectations. I mean, it's obviously a very anticipated yeah. game, but Cyberpunk's expectations are astronomic. Um, but it, it, I mean, as a cautionary tale, I'm sure uh, Cyberpunk's developers might feel justified in their decision today by looking at how the Watchdog um, reviews have gone, which is mm. uh, it's uh, going to need a big patch quite quickly. It seems. Um, yeah, you're going to play that when it comes out. Watchdogs tomorrow. Maybe. I hadn't thought about it, really. Like, I, there's something about it that didn't appeal to me. Although I quite like the idea of collecting random people. But I don't think I've really had, a like, a big uh, open-world game in my kind of... in my life, or space for it in my life for a little while now, to be honest. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. not really. Like, I tend to just be playing multiplayer things and shorter games because I can't imagine having the time to sink that much time into a big kind of sandbox I think I think mm. I would wait to hear friends report back. Like if it does generate yeah. really cool stories, I will play it. But I think the thing is for me, like I I can't see myself playing another like to do list game. It it does sound from the reviews that come out that it is this weird mixture of a, a you know a frivolous sandbox attached to some quite serious chin stroking stuff about uh, resisting fascism, and the two things do not sit well together. Yeah, but I, I'm gonna say, I mean, I, I are you saying I that? Really, no, no matter. <laughs> <laughs> I really want to go to London, is what I'm saying, I mm. guess. Because uh, this is how bad lockdown has been. It's made me long for London. What an obscene thing this, Weird. this Weird. disease has been. But um, I don't want to go to London and blow stuff up. I just want to walk around and have a nice time. Yeah, it's made me long um, for like Italy and Spain, <laughs> I think. <laughs> um, that's one of the reasons I've been enjoying watching Boreanon is it's all filmed in Portugal and you're like god this is oh, nice lovely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> like, um, yeah. Now I can see that. Although, actually, I mean, to be honest, I had the strange reaction to Flight Simulator on that basis where, like, mm. I was both, like, powerfully enjoying the ability to cruise anywhere in the world and then too sad to keep playing it. Like, I'm, I'm upset about this plane now. Like, <laughs> you know, I did, I did a thing where I decided, you know what, I'm just going to chill out for 15 minutes. Because 15 minutes is the amount of time it takes to fly from the little airfield near my parents' house to the little airfield just over from the river from us in um, just southwest of Bath. I think maybe I've mentioned this in the pod. And about halfway through, in, in my little plane, and the airfield's next to the place where I had my first ever job after university, my first serious job. And something about that whole journey was like, oh God, this feels like, this feels like I'm having a crisis in an Ian McEwan novel. I have to land this fucking plane. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, I wasn't ready for Microsoft Flight Simulator kind of uh, to do that, to elicit that from me. Um, so maybe I don't know how I would react to Watch Dogs, the game where you get, you know, you, you fight drone fascism in London or whatever. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm okay with going to a fantasy place. That's fine. What have you been playing, Chris? Well, um, I have been playing a bunch of a game that we briefly talked about on the pod, but I think maybe just on the cusp of it becoming a phenomena, mm-hmm. um, which is uh, Phasmophobia, mm. um, which I know that you you played because you, you you told me about it on the pod, and <laughs> it 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 took me a while to get into it, and I ended up getting into it at the behest of uh, Paul and and his pals, and um, I have had a really really good time with it. And I think my slightly different take on it to the take that you brought to it, because it is super ropey, is I feel like Phasmophobia is interesting because I think it is first and foremost a VR game in its bones. Right. Yeah, and, I didn't play in VR, and I imagine yeah, that makes a big difference. I And the difference is very stark to me. I think it's I think its core loop and its fantasy is compelling enough, and its, its Twitch friendliness, which I think is really the measure that matters, is compelling yeah. enough to to drive it to these you know like two hundred thousand concurrent players on Steam kind of mega numbers, which is great, and it's actually really rare that a VR game can do that. But I think it's a VR game, and that's and that's what's really cool about it. So, um, I've played it pretty much exclusively in VR. I had some performance issues that ended up being related to something else, and fixed them, which was good. And like, I had to go back to trying to play it just right the normal way once, and I was like, I'm no longer interested in this. This seems like a super ropey Unity horror game, but in VR. Um, there's something really special about it. Uh, lots of really special things about it, even though it's obviously ropey and everything else. Um, and uh, part of that is that um, it's a multiplayer VR game that makes an attempt to simulate your entire body. Most multiplayer VR things don't do this. You can see hands in a face or something like that. I, you can see the things the game is actually tracking. Um uh, this does a strange thing where it is tracking your actual hands and they're tied to your character's model and it's tracking your head and it's doing it's extrapolating what it can from that to pretty accurately map your upper body ish and then it's doing its best fucking guess about your legs <laughs> and uh, and that is is wonderful and actually when you're playing with someone else in VR allows for like a degree of physicality that is genuinely quite it's very fun and it's also quite sweet. Like you look very drunk to each other and you're just <laughs> really? sort of bimbling around and you can like, you can pose for photos. You can take selfies with the, 
the digital cameras you can tit about basically and particularly in the lobby area where you can play with a basketball or stack cans or just you know hang out it's very funny if you actually have to sit down in real life if you or crawl around in real life the game has no way of representing that other than having your character crouch increasingly squat like increasingly deep and so if it, you know there's lots of kind of strange running around as sort of squat little silly drunk men and it's very very entertaining the other side to that that's really good though is that you can play co-op where some people are in vr and some people are playing the normal way and it creates this extremely good uh scenario where you have some players who are relatively stiffly animated but familiar fps characters moving in the way that we have grown accustomed to and some other characters are these strange cursed hyper expressive like quote unquote real like people and that combination feels like something out of a creepypasta or something out of like you know when like you're on a, watching a police show and someone in it is playing a video game that they've had to make up for the show and <laughs> right. there's something slightly wrong about it or something wrong about the animation it pushes it into this territory which is somehow perfect for a horror game and um and it's just led to this dynamic that i really really enjoy so to, to repeat just for people that aren't left behind if they didn't listen to the previous episode phasmophobia is a game about basically being ghost hunters and i would describe it really as like in the same genre as games like viscera cleanup detail and um and like um to some extent, something like totally accurate delivery service or stuff. I'm maybe conflating two game names there, but there are these games, these sort of party games to an extent, which are effectively like scenario co-op. Like you're not trying to get through a level to the end of the level or beat a boss or something like that. You are given an environment and you have to achieve something in that environment in your own way in the tools you bring with you so visceral clean detail is a really really good example of this and one of the earliest ones which is clean up this level from an fps after the battle's already been fought and hose it down and this is very much that you go to a house or a farmhouse or a spooky place that has random elements inside is a randomly generated ghost you gotta identify what kind of ghost it is that's it and everything else is all these tools and gadgets and things that you use to kind of do stuff um, and that is a uh, a really good combo with VR for one thing, because the tactility of those devices goes up a huge amount and you can position things in a very, very fine way. So much so that there's like suddenly like a natural division of labor because VR, VR players can carry more stuff because as a, as a non-VR player, you're limited to sort of quite digital inventory slots. As a VR player, you just fucking carry things. And so, you you know, it, it does feel like playing a slightly different game. Um, huh. But also, um, but also it's a lot scarier in VR, like a lot scarier because you, it does have a pretty strong sense of presence. Like in addition to just the kind of, obviously the ghost scenario, like the environments are quite realistic and they are, they feel to mm. scale in VR in a way that they don't, I found outside of VR. Yeah, uh, I bet also tentatively opening or closing a door is uh, yeah is much Horrible. more tense in VR. Yeah, because it's not <laughs> like a swing; it doesn't swing perfectly, right? You kind of have to mm. you have to like get a hand free, and like you're often carrying too much stuff, or like you have to put something down. Um, and the yeah, and so there's there's just something really compelling about that. So it's it's fun when it's just two of you in VR, and there's a lot of like tentative sort of roadie runs to and from the van and setting up your kind of ghost sort of hunting area and trying to figure things out 
And then it's really fun paired with people who aren't in VR. So we were playing it with with friends, uh, one of whom stayed in the van, van not in VR, which is a good position for the kind of radio person. And the other of whom is just incredibly brave. But I will say it is easier to be incredibly brave when you're not in VR. <laughs> and they created a really good middle ground, which felt a lot like Scooby-Doo, where Paul and I were basically like huddled together for protection in VR watching someone who is essentially viewing the game through a letterbox compared to how we're seeing it wander into the middle of a dark room shouting the name of the ghost inviting death as we kind of huddle in in one corner um while um someone else kind of barks commands to run over the radio it's really good i'm really really enjoying it um the yeah like it's like i say very ropey but I do genuinely think they've they've hit on something, particularly given, I think, the absence of similarly rules or AI-driven horror stuff after Alien Isolation, because it's very much in that wheelhouse. Yeah. And it feels like such an underexplored thing. I, I feel like I may have been overly harsh on it last time. Not because I, I did, I'm, but I think I even said last time that I really did enjoy um, playing it. But I think that was because... Even without VR, I mean, which is, seems to be where the kind of the most sort of like structural, actual game design has occurred. Like even without that stuff, mm. uh, it's still fun to play because, I mean, I guess it's because all the Twitch players and stuff have essentially tutorialized its audience in how to successfully role play, basically. It's a role play space. Yeah, um, it is, yeah. And uh, I think it. I'd be interested to know how people who have enjoyed it just in the general public would have enjoyed it had they not seen other people play it performatively first uh, i wonder if mm. the majority of its success has come from and this is in no way a hit on the game this has obviously been a great success for it but like i wonder if the majority of its uh, audience loves it partly because they have had this experience of seeing other people play it in the right way essentially first and and bring their those their kind of own imaginations to it yeah i think that's i think that's an interesting point like it does feel like something that it works best when you're on the same when you're kind of on the same page as the people that you're playing with about what your expectations are and i think you're right that twitch particularly has played a huge role in kind of tutoring people in how to do that and I think I think actually the 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 because the thing I think is magical about it is I do think it's capable of bringing out some of those experiences on its own because in VR particularly it is a tremendous titting around game, right? Like because of the amount of physicality that's present in the characters, um, and because you get nervous and things actually happen. We had a, a wonderful moment uh, when three of us entered the house. Um, and as, as one person was just taking their first tentative steps up the awful stairs, um, Paul burped really loudly <laughs> and we shat ourselves. Like it was, it was horrendous, but the consequence of me like doubled over laughing was that in, I doubled over laughing in real life and headbutted my computer, my actual <laughs> computer. And, and what this meant was that in game, they saw my character kind of crouch run into the wall and then heard a real physical like bong sound <laughs> and like and i just like fell backwards onto my ass and was sat on the floor laughing and then and it's all collapsed right we're just inside the haunted house everything the entire mood is kind of gone and it's very 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 funny and then i finally like picked myself up bleary eyed look up still with the headset on 
and the fucking ghost in this case a kind of skinless you know kind of shark moored unity asset store monster woman is stood directly fucking behind one of them oh god and i go <laughs> and pip heard me scream from downstairs and then <laughs> and then and then paul screams and then like this other person who isn't in vr can't see it fast enough so he spins around and she's gone and now we're all in bits and now we're in it right like it was this kind of <laughs> completely organic horror movie scenario where like maybe it's slightly too silly to have been scripted like that but there was something about that sudden switch from like trepidation to like humor and kind of catharsis. It was, it was as, as daft as that is, it was the equivalent of the hunting, hunting, hunting with the flashlight. Oh, it's just a hamster in a cage. Oh, wait, fuck a murderer. Yeah. Kind of <laughs> yeah. sequence. You accident- um, completely emergently played out the exact horror beats from a film. Yeah, exactly. And that, that I think is really great about it. Minus the burp maybe, but <laughs> And that I think, well, I think it would have been like, that could have happened, but it would have been a very particular horror movie. And it would have been like, I don't know, Jack Black or something burps in the background. Right, right. Right, right before he's murdered. But anyway, um, <laughs> but I also think, I think, and then that was a moment where everyone's kind of sensibilities came together really well. The other thing I found is that I have this interesting relationship with it where I get dependent on the people that I'm playing with. And sometimes frustrated with like what they're doing because like i'm scared and i want us to stick to the plan and if we go off piste then i'm in danger right like if we know the ghost is likely to hunt us when we're alone don't don't run off come back right and that sort of like hits my bossy nerve but there's also a sense of like um after a certain point people's familiarity with the game kind of allows them to game it to an extent Mm. Right, they they reduce the possibility space faster in their heads of what's likely to be happening, and it does benefit from like a methodical approach. Like the best example I can see think of at this at the moment is there comes a point where you've got a pretty good idea of what the ghost is. You just basically need one more piece of evidence, which would be something like finding an area where the temperature is freezing, or getting it to write in the ghost book, or getting it to speak, mm. or something like that. And people will just start trying to goad that behavior and brute force that behavior and some of the tension leaves the room. Like my approach has been, I think, instinctively to be like, okay, we have a bit of evidence now. So I know it's one of these two kinds of ghosts and I'm going to look at their collective weaknesses and try and figure out how I'm running around the house, arranging gadgets and going back to the van for new gadgets in order to try and counteract what I think are the hunting behaviors of the ghost we're likely to be facing, right? Like... But actually, a lot of players at that point don't really care about counteracting the hunting behaviors because they want to trigger the hunt because if they trigger the hunt, they'll probably get a photo of it. Right. You know what I mean? And that's the sort of thing where I feel like it needs maybe rebalancing slightly. Mm-hmm. Um, but that said, I'm very impressed with what it's managed to bring out of people, given A, how ropey it is and B, how early it is. Like this is, should be said, still like a bit of an early access experiment that's just been kind of punted out on Steam for a tenner. Do you think it would benefit from having more involved detection things? Because right now it's essentially just a checklist. Like you take an item into yeah. a room and it says yes or no. But I'm, and like part of me, I feel like I you and i may come well maybe less so you because you have your experience in improv theater but like suddenly i come from a generation of gamers who sort of expect game design to be more structured you know and so like i I admire games which intentionally have 
structures that you can apply yourself to as a player. Whereas this is, you know, a very, very thin layer of design and a lot of uh, player behavior that is essentially self-driven. Yeah. And for me, I want the game to, to have something more complicated for me to do in those environments. Um, and, and, you know, there's, there's plenty of... You know, uh, horror films and, and stuff to draw on for those kind of ghost detection techniques and uh, you know rituals or whatever. Um, but actually, I, I I don't know if that would that would benefit the audience who who is already enjoying the experience or whether they they really just need role play prompts from these things. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting because I I think I think the issue is. Um, the prompts run thin after a certain amount of time and you need mm. to refresh that set. Like it's ironic because it is the perfect game for kind of surprise seasonal modes, right? Ironically, it's the perfect game to receive a Halloween mode, even though it's already spooky. Um, it's the perfect game to suddenly change the rules or upset the mm. player's expectation of what's going to happen in order to refresh that role play sense, right? Yeah. Because what you want to bring people back to is the feeling of, I don't know what's in this house and I need to be careful. Like that's its, and I'm afraid, that that's its key emotional beat. And familiarity, with familiarity comes uh, the diminishment of that feeling. I do think, I think it needs, um, at the moment, you're right. Like there's a relative, the, the sort of possibility space for what the ghost can be is relatively shallow. And I don't just mean that in terms of like three pieces of evidence will always identify it. I mean that they're all different flavors of scary murder person, hmm. right? It's a murder ghost. And I think, and your job is always going to be the same. Your job is always going to be figure out what it is and leave. And I think uh, the way they build out on that and add interest is to uh, tweak that dynamic a bit so that at the moment it feels like there's one game mode which is identify the murderer mm. or the type of murderer and then leave i think it would be interesting to um have identification as a really key aspect of that but maybe have resolution as yeah, a kind banishment. of yes banishment or something like that as a a goal that if you can do it it's like the way this is this occurred to me. I was trying to think through this this design space. Basically, I think banishment should be something that, like, if they do implement it, should be extremely high stakes, and should where success is highly dependent on you being right about what kind yeah. of ghost it is. And where getting that wrong is potentially a huge disaster. And also, where getting it wrong, but also where the possibility of getting it wrong starts a bit earlier in the process than just when you've decided the banishment is possible. What I mean is, for example. You might have some ghosts that are less aggressive than others, but if you have, in the course of the investigation, made them angry, uh, it becomes that much harder to banish them. So to, to create these little uncertainties into the system mm. where we have to be careful at this point, even if we don't think we have to, because if it is this kind of ghost, then it will make it harder to get this reward a bit deeper down the, the track if we choose to go in that direction. With the option, of course, that you can just slam the button on the truck and close the door and leave at any time. You know, just adding those sorts of abilities for players who are familiar to kind of push a bit further and see what's possible. Um, encourage players to take risks, that kind of thing. The other thing, I, Paul had an idea, so this is credit to him, that I thought was really cool, which is like unresolved aggressive ghosts um, should or could be able to choose to subsequently haunt one of the players mm. and therefore be taken into subsequent maps. 
Oh, oh, interesting. Like, yeah, if so you go you know, completely the... mad, surely that is the uh, that's the penalty. Yeah, right. Well, there's a chance that that happens, and you shouldn't be told explicitly that it's happened. Yeah. So it's like you know, let's say you're told that the ghost in this house is called Martin. And then you get in there and say, you know, Martin doesn't reply, but Helen, the ghost from the previous house, does. And then you shit yourself because you realize <laughs> that you brought them with you. You know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah. those that this is the sort of, like I find this really exciting because that territory is really rich. Really well, who's rich. driving the van, Chris? Maybe it was the ghost all along. <laughs> it's <laughs> um, like those kinds of like it would be so cruel of them to suddenly scare you in the lobby area. But if any game was built for that, it's that, right? Like yeah. you're picking a level and the lights go off. Like, I feel like there does need to be some uh, third act to the uh, the whole thing. Like, yeah, uh, I mean, the, the whole fantasy of of ghosts that it sets up itself in this is that they are spirits that have you know have not left this world because of some trauma that occurred to them. You should have you should have to be able to resolve that trauma in some way even if it's like yeah. mechanically very kind of boiled down you should have to find find where their bones are buried and then you know give them a, a proper send-off or something i don't know <laughs> yeah or like um have like it'd be hard to generate but have some sort of additional piece of information to find in the house right yeah right like yeah. a photograph or a, you know you find the identity of their murderer or something yes. like that yeah yeah you know, things like this. But then you have to kind of get the ghost into a position where you can transmit that information and that should feel mm. very dependent on your ability to know not just what the ghost doesn't like, but like what they might be able to respond to. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's cool though. Like the use of your actual voice is something I didn't realize it was as implemented as it was, where like yeah, talking right. to the ghost mm. is such a big part of it. Um, it needs, uh, it that, needs yeah. some Blue Lick Road uh, DLC, Amazon reseller mm. DLC. Yeah, yeah, it does. Like that'd be a horrible location for that. Can <laughs> yeah. you imagine? Can you hear me, Doc Martin? If you can hear me, give me a sign. <laughs> huh. What you been playing? I've been playing Ring of Pain, um, which is. I see. Um, I too had a kebab for that. <laughs> it's going back to the poo eggs, isn't it? Yeah. Um, it's a. Have you heard of it at all? I haven't. Interesting, because I, I see. To me, I, I thought this came up on Steam quite a lot, and it was being recommended to me. So I assumed it was a big release, but then everybody I've talked to about it doesn't seem to have heard of it. So maybe it's not. Maybe I'm... anyway, it's um, I suppose it's a roguelike, but isn't everything now? Uh, it's mm. sort of a, a sort of pachinko roguelike where you sort of bounce down this very limited choice tree basically through this dungeon, and each tier of the dungeon uh, is. Uh, a nest. It's a a nest of this creepily over familiar bird thing, uh, who occasionally gives you spoons. Um, it's a horror game, uh, and the bird is horrible, uh, but it's also kind of cute in the, in in that way. Um, and each each layer of this dungeon is a floating ring of cards, and you essentially mm. rotate this ring to access or combat the front facing cards if you can picture that and then you basically have very few choices of what you can do you can attack the cards if they're monsters or or if you have a spell you can cast a spell uh you can consume them if they are potions or you can loot them if they're pieces of kit and the kit gives you various buffs and and, and also debuffs like to stats that you have armor health speed mm. and crit chance there may be also a stealth 
Uh, stat anyway, there's a lot of there's a huge amount of kit in the game, and it's sort of fed to you sporadically. And so by the end, once you got quite deep in the dungeon, you actually have a, a very kind of elaborate set of buffs. Um, uh, and enemies can uh, attack you. Uh, some attack you actively of their own volition, and some attack attack you reactively. And your speed determines whether you can hit them before they hit you. Um, and if you try to rotate the ring past an enemy, they'll perform a stealth check. And if you fail, they get a free hit on you. And some mm. enemies can hit you even when they aren't in the front facing cards. Like range enemies can hit you from somewhere else in the ring. And some enemies move through the cards themselves, sort of shuffling through this, this ring towards you or away from you if they're fleeing you. Um, and you don't have to kill everything in a, in a given ring because interspersing the cards are multiple exits to another ring, basically, or a shop. Um, and this is meant to offer you branches through this dungeon. But since these branches are just different arrangements of cards, I, I don't really know if it if it really needs to be a roguelike. Like, I don't know that there's any reason to have static seeds where each layer of this nest dungeon is the same i mean it doesn't really I, I don't see what the appeal of that is versus a situation where the cards are just randomized in each mm. tier um but I, you know i i really like i i like the art i like the the, the vibe it has and I, I really like the game's simplicity it feels quite a lot like um uh something like you know a, a toilet game like hoplite or something like this that you might play on your phone <laughs> um that's the that's high praise <laughs> Uh, yeah it is and i mean it is it's also it could be the opposite that's the reason it's funny <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know it's it's one of those garbage games that you just adore <laughs> when you're taking the bins out <laughs> no it's, it's it's good it's but it, it's not i don't think it's designed for kind of like uh complex strategizing and right this is sort of a flaw to it as well. Like you only really have three choices at your disposal at any given time and often fewer, you know, do I attack this card? Mm. Do I try to move past the card? Um, do I cast a spell is usually the, the upper limit and often you don't have a spell. So it's just two choices. Right. Um, and that would, that would still be kind of fun if you were making long-term choices that, mm. that could affect your overall strategy like there's the strategy layer to the game just doesn't have enough levers on it that you can meaningly meaningfully pull, and this is especially truly true early on because you are you're not only reliant on random drops for any kind of items you get, which is the entire source of your upgrades basically, but also you have to play the game multiple times just to unlock the chance of those drops, and you have no say mm. over what you're unlocking or really when you access them, and just that sort of seems critical to making any headway. So like, for example, there are enemies which uh, make their way to you and just blow themselves up or blow themselves up when you kill them. Um, and unless you have an item which reduces the damage you take from explosions, there are very common in certain circumstances in which they'll just fucking kill you straight away. And there's nothing you can do about it. There's no choices you could make. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and the, the damage, the items that damage reduce that damage don't just don't drop that often. Um, and you, you, because, because you don't get a say in what items really come up or when there's no real way you can plan ahead to stack buffs. So it's not like you can sit down and go, okay, this is going to be my ice magic run or my glass cannon run. You just, you just have to deal with what you're dealt. And often that is that those cards don't provide any synergy. Um, 
So I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I, f- I feel like I have obviously I haven't played it enough in order to unlock the f- the the full set of items. Maybe the more you grind it, the, the unlocks you get more regularly give you high powered items and better synergies. But I'm I've put some time into it, and it's just not doing that for me yet. And I feel like maybe getting to that point where it does do that is just throwing away my time on this planet. It seems like a tricky question for roguelikes in general at the moment. Is like how much do you how much emphasis do you place on that kind of meta game you know over like unlock progress thing mm. right um it quite substantially changes the kinds of games these are i think yeah towards um like the value of a run is not necessarily the decisions that you make in the run it's the progress you make on a much bigger xp bar that is probably really the thing that's unlocking the content for you i i've come to realize that i kind of hate that (laughs) like i i understand there is there is a value in having uh, a larger sense of progress over time certainly you need that if you're not experiencing progress moment to moment but i find it well I, i tell you what when it works it's invisible and when it doesn't work for me, it it I keenly resent it. And and I feel right. like even with games that are obviously very, very good, very accomplished games like Hades, I feel like ultimately my success at them is being set at a pace that is completely outside of anything to do with me. It's just the mm. designer sat down and said, okay, well, we're just going to space out these unlocks so that it takes them four hours and that's it, you know? And I'm, in Hades, it's a bit different because obviously you can be skillful. Um, at the game and presumably advance through it quicker um i can't personally <laughs> but, but, but people <laughs> can. can yes yeah <laughs> but with something like this where there's a very limited possibility space uh, that you can express as as a, that you could explore as a player anyway um i just feel like i i feel like the the, the design has the the wheels are in motion the cogs are turning and i don't have any control over the speed at which they're they're whizzing <laughs> <laughs> yeah right you're on a ride um i suppose though you're right though it only matters to the extent that you notice that's what's happening and it feels like sometimes and maybe in some cases these are more like granular failings of specific card design for example or particular monster design than they are issues with the concept um yeah but yeah Hmm. anyway Hmm. basically that was a very thin and uneducated take about a game i haven't played sufficiently to understand (laughs) so uh, (laughs) your mileage may vary but if you like this sort of thing You'll like this sort of thing. <laughs> what are you else? Other bo- <laughs> <laughs> what else have you been playing, Chris? Um, so the other thing I've been playing, I, I think I would give a shout out to is, um, uh, well, so I normally don't talk about the perennial games that I'm always playing on the pod or I try not to in case something's going to happen because I'm always playing Destiny, for example. That's my kind of happy place, really. Um, but I've been playing uh, a lot of Warzone, as ever, because it remains a very good game in a way that is sort of alarming to me as a kind of Call of Duty thing, which I've always associated very much with this kind of fast fo- fast food experience that will make me feel ill eventually, whereas Warzone keeps kind of, you know, feeding back and is out and has lasted in my interest much longer than ostensibly sort of uh, more robustly kind of designed competitors like Apex, which is a respawn game. And I love respawn and all the rest of it. And yet I come back to Warzone. One of the reasons for coming back to Warzone recently is it's surprisingly 
excellent Halloween mode. And I think at the time that we put this pod out, this will probably not have a tremendous amount of time left to run. I imagine it'll be running past Halloween. But if you haven't played Warzone in a bit and you haven't played it yet, I really recommend it because I think they have done something interesting with the design that I will of Battle Royales generally that I will genuinely miss when it goes away. And that is, I think, the the kind of slight monkey's paw curling of, of these Halloween modes where when they're actually good and interestingly implemented, um, you don't want them to be seasonal. And when they are just there to give you kind of a bit of seasonal flavor, they become annoying really quickly and you wish they'd go away, which is, I think, Destiny's problem at the moment. Anyway, they've gone really, really all in on this. And obviously, Call of Duty has this history of like zombies modes and things going back a long way. But they really have invested big. And the first layer of that investment is just the map itself. So the Halloween version of the map takes place at night. And like that should just be a feature because the time of day is an interesting twist to add to the map. And they've done some really interesting things, I think, with making that feel slightly different to equivalents in other battle royales where, like, for example, the interiors of buildings on the map tend to be very brightly lit which means that you actually feel more exposed to being inside sometimes than you do being outside, which is a nice hmm. twist on Battle Royale because you can be seen really easily if you're in a building because it's very bright inside. Um, and um, oh, obviously you can hide behind something, but, but yeah. They've also done this like horror pass on the map, which I think is really cute and really nicely done where it's beyond simply like they've added some jack-o'-lanterns and some spider webs. They've like re-themed areas so there's a big hospital in Warzone, and now if you go there you'll occasionally just see like a flicker of a ghost like a phasmophobia ghost just sort of echo down a corridor or like you'll you know you'll turn a corridor a corner underground in one of the kind of like areas near the dam and see like a pool of blood pooling on the floor and then pouring backwards into the ceiling and like all these little weird little touches they've also added and this is very cruel of them jump scare boxes so you're always running around that game hoovering up loot boxes to improve your equipment and your gear and occasionally you'll open one now and it'll go boo <laughs> and that's a shitty thing for them to do and it's like but it's a perfect use of the season i think and it's very funny how does it but actually, all of this is, what, what is the nature of its boo it's like a ghost face kind of screaming at you oh. you know like um there's a few different varieties of boo but it's really that kind of just like it's it's fun, like yeah, I'm just gonna loot this, like the voice chat of it, like the yeah, I'm just gonna loot, I'm just yeah, hang on, this one, this place is unlooted. I'm just gonna go some, <laughs> like that's a, it's a good, um, it's a good, uh, it's a good feeling, it's a good time, but the mode itself is called Zombie Royale, and the way it works is you drop in in your team, and night map, all the rest of that stuff, uh, it's a smaller initial circle, but the maximum amount of players, so it's like 150 players divided between however many teams, maximum size of three, I think, in a relatively small part of the map straight away. So it's almost immediately a bit of a bloodbath. And then it's nighttime, but it's nighttime, so you can't see people as easily. And that's a really good balance because it's like, I think it would otherwise become a kind of rooftop snipe fest, uh, but it's dark. Um, when you die, instead of going to the gulag, which is normally where you go in Call of Duty, um, you go, you, you turn to a zombie. And uh, you, you can, when you're a zombie, you're still allied with the other humans that are on your team. Um, but you uh, you fall from the sky rather than parachuting and smack into the ground in a kind of very silly way. Uh, and you have, you know, a special new vision mode. You have kind of night vision, purple night vision, basically. And your hands are in front of your face. 
and your vision's slightly blurry and you have a bunch of special abilities and you're basically either a left for dead character in multiplayer when you can play as the zombies or an alien from avp that's basically where this puts you cool. you have a really specific set of powers you're really fast you have a recharging jump which causes you to fire like a jet of blue flame out of your ass and fling yourself into the sky and it really uh-huh. is a massive jump. It's more. It reminds me of the jump power from Crackdown. Right. I don't know if that reference will land. In that you charge it up for a certain amount of time, then let it go. And then you're in the air with quite a lot of air control, but you can no longer control your velocity. And so there's quite a lot of like learning to like not jump too much or too high in order to be able to land on mm. people. But at the same time... Um, there's always a degree of slapstick and kind of inaccuracy to it, which I think is quite important. Whenever you do that as well, in addition to firing a jet of very visible blue flame out of your ass, you also go, oh! <laughs> and so, so the distant, in addition to the kind of trepidatious, you know, um, creeping across the map stuff that you and I are familiar with from both this and Hunt and other things, you also have and the distance and a gunfire and trying to position, figure out what's going on. You also have just this constant low level, particularly as the amount of zombies build up, um, and just watching like men fling themselves across the map. You also have the ability to throw a gas grenade, uh, which causes people to choke and to uh, explode in an EM to create an EMP around yourself, which disables the UI of any human players that it hits. Cool. And I think prevents them from aiming down sights. Oh. And otherwise, you just melee attack. If, as a zombie, uh, when when a human dies from any cause. Um, they drop a vial of it's it's a it's of antiviral serum, but Paul and I started calling it man juice, and <laughs> so I'll henceforth refer to it as man juice because it just looks like a little purple juice box basically. If you if you manage to find two vials of man juice immediately on picking up the second one, your zombie will um, stab themselves with the man juice, and you come back as a human. You parachute back in oh. with all of the equipment you had when you died, which is a really big difference. So you come back in really dangerous. Um, and what this means is you've got this really high cadence battle royale where you can come back to life several times in the course of the game. The way your team loses is if you all become zombies and you all die as zombies. Wow, that seems like, like if, it's going to extend the round almost indefinitely. Right, except the map is a lot smaller, and so it's a bloodbath, basically. Oh. Does it still have and, the shrinking map? Yes. And that kills zombies as well? No. Oh. So zombies can survive in the gas, which again, it means that like... It's, and it actually ends up quite a fast game, because huh. it takes away a lot of the... Particularly late in the round. Late in the round, you're quite likely to have... Um, you know, we've had a situation where it's down to like, in terms of players who can still win, it's down to the final three teams, for example. But there are 12 teams worth of living zombies running around. And so the last two teams, in addition to fighting each other, which would be the traditional end of a battle royale, final circle kind of standoff, are actually trying to survive just a million zombies who are competing to be the last people in the map. Right. Because the other side of it is every zombie needs two lots of man juice to become a human again, which means that every human that dies creates a zombie, but every two human that dies creates another human. That's how that works, kids. Um, And so it is inevitably a diminishing pool. 
um, it's just that competition among the zombies gets more intense for right. for, for the juice that, that remains. So hang on, are the zombies actually, also killing each other? No, they right. can't kill okay. each other. Okay, okay, okay. And so you're sort of just in competition, like you're just racing for the kills. And you're, you're also quite vulnerable. Like you can be gunned down if someone sees you coming, particularly, and, and you take loads of damage from headshots. So you have to kind of, you can't really stay still. You do have to kind of keep moving and wait for your moment and leap on people. But it's this really good cadence of like, high stakes battle royale where also zombies drop tons of stuff when they die they drop tons of money they drop quite rare equipment sometimes and so that creates this thing where it's your situation is you usually get to a good loadout faster as a normal player but you're also in constant danger so you're constantly using it and then you're back as a zombie and then you get that kind of pace breaker of getting to come back as this kind of like you know monster mode basically and then if you play well or you get lucky, you're back in the game again. And that that rapid cycle actually really works because it's interesting because it's still Battle Royale, but the kind of permadeath aspect of it is much less pronounced. And yet the feeling kind of remains. It's really good. Like I was really kind of impressed with, you know, <clears throat> how that affects how Battle Royale feels, I think. And the fact that like letting people back in is a really like, it works perfectly well. Like the zombie also has like permanent, like, radar they can see where players are all the hmm. time and so you end up with like these strange partnerships of like one person on the team is dead and this come back as a zombie but they are like hiding in the back of a truck being driven by the still human player acting as a kind of roaming uav wow <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting yeah i would never have thought to make a game like that where zombies can conditionally still be allied with humans Right, yeah, because you're still on your friend's team rather yeah. than your own. Like that creates a really like, and, strange yeah. dynamic. It does. It's basically the end of Shaun of the Dead. <laughs> you're right. <laughs> but you can't do things like, for example, if your human teammate is downed, you can't revive them as a zombie. Ah, um, okay. So, like, you can't interact in a lot of the ways you used to be able to. But if they do die, you can eat their juice, and that can be a strategic. <laughs> That is a strategic choice. The funniest thing is, I think, I don't know if they left this in on purpose, but um, Warzone has these like climbing points, which are these like cables dangling from buildings and also like elevator shaft cables where your character pulls out like this little handheld zip device, zip line device thing and like attaches it to the cable and then whizzes up the building, right? One of them Clancy machines, the kids like. <laughs> Um, and what's very funny is that is the only animation that they have carried over from the human to the zombie. And so you'll be in the situation where like the sniper's on a rooftop and you'll be leaping around as this kind of screeching power farting rocket zombie, and then run up to the edge of a cable and pull out your like Tom Clancy zip line and like Sam Fisher your way up onto the roof and then go back to being a zombie. Sorry. <laughs> That does sound really good. I don't know that I've got enough gigabyteage for it. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's whatever it is now, 10, 8, 800 gigabytes of <sighs> pure textures. It's still the strangest, that game, in terms of its massiveness. Yeah. But yeah, but it remains really good. It's, it's still very gaudy. They've also licensed Saw and Texas Chainsaw Massacre, both for in-game skins and also so you can play as Jigsaw. But also, like, TVs in the various houses are now playing, like, flickering still frames from those movies and things. Oh, which wow. is good, because it means that Warzone hasn't escaped its deep, like, HMV poster bucket tackiness. <laughs> <laughs> wow. 
But yeah. Yeah, it does sound like a shame that that's going to disappear. Yeah. So, yeah. Maybe it'll, I mean, it'll come back, I imagine. But who knows what they will do for Christmas? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, we, <laughs> I mean, we talked about it off the pod a little bit, but the, um, uh, the Halloween update to uh, Tom Clancy's Rainbow Six Siege. Mm. Uh, I don't know how it plays, but it is entertaining to look at where they've replaced all of the avatars with Muppets, essentially. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which I, yeah, it's, it's, it's just a game I want to play. It's a strong aesthetic. It really is. You want to do a question? <laughs> yes. Yes, that's exactly what I want. Ah. Ah. Let's open the question bucket. And who is inside? It's Jack. <laughs> he says, Dear Creighton Crowbar, last year I wrote in with a question about Mass Effect and Thomas Hobbes that made me sound like a complete douche. However, going off the... Sh- he didn't. It really didn't. However, going off the short discussion of Mass Effect 2's robot made up of people goo, it is clear that I did not go far enough. Ah, man juice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In Leviathan, Hobbes posits a materialist conception of society that is created in the image of a human because it is built by humans. That is to say, the Leviathan is literally a government shaped like a person and suffer from things like imposter syndrome. Presumably, I don't know if Hobbes would agree, but he's dead now, so who cares? This is why the Reaper in the first game sides with the Geth. They are the race that has decided by themselves to become parts of a greater whole. Reapers are just accelerationists who desire a material transformation of any sufficiently advanced race into one body resembling that race. That is why they are pumping human matter into a big semi-robotic fetus thing at the end of game two. And before you say, no, this isn't meant to be taken literally, I swear that Hobbes meant it super literally, and it's very funny to see that it makes its way into a game's climax. Finally, a question. Is this the greatest example of ludonarrative assonance or what? Sincerely, Jack, a crank. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good email. So here's the thing. Here's my issue with this. If the Reapers want to just accelerate you into your final form, which is a literal big version of you with the word government written down the side, <laughs> why do all of the other Reapers look like lobsters? All of them. Every single other one looks like a big lobster and in, in fact looks like the big lobster that the, the reapers look like which lives under the sea in the expansion leviathan is that because they've already assimilated the race of lobster people well no they came from the race of lobster people oh, i see they were originally built by the lobster people in their own image in fact they are they are and, and the thing is right that they're not even leviathans by those standards because they're about the same size as the people right the reapers are just the equivalent of like a human android to the people who created them. About the same size, same sort of appearance. The only difference, it's a robot. So honestly, I don't think I don't think we can actually say that Thomas Hobbes' work on Mass Effect 2 was that coherent. <laughs> <laughs> I think it comes apart a little bit. He hadn't because... considered a big lobster the same size as a small lobster might play. More right. Wrong. If if we had if we had discovered in the Mass Effect Three expansion, the Viathan that the Reapers were the creation, and I appreciate the spoilers for a ten-year-old game here. God, almost ten years. Um, you know, were the creation of a race of ordinary-sized lobsters, or even let's say human-sized lobster people, as opposed to dinosaur-sized lobster monsters, actually bigger than that, um, depends on the dinosaur. Then I think we could say. That yes, there was some, there was a kind of one to one here. But the fact is, 
however many millions of years of this particular cycle that is described in the Mass Effect series mm. has resulted in a galaxy full of massive lobster robots rather than what you would expect if this if this position was correct, which is a kind of motley assembly of massive robot aliens that would kind of have, I guess, the kind of collective effect of like kind of Macy's parade balloons, <laughs> right? <laughs> I think I think without explicit clarification from Thomas Hobbes himself, we are not sure from the uh, cover illustration Leviathan whether he's proposing to build um, a society out of its existing people in the shape of a giant human, or whether he's proposing the construction of a normal-sized government out of very very tiny people. Right, a kind of a kind of Swiftian like crossover here, where it's like. <laughs> Where, you know, Gulliver arrives and he's just the government now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all the Lilliputians just skin him, climb inside his flesh. And uh, yeah, that's uh, that's how democracy works. Mm, yeah. Um, is it? Mm. Mm. I mean, so yeah, because here's the thing. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Um, is it the greatest example of lewd narrative assonance? Well, I think we've 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 questioned the integrity of that ass. I gotta say, mm-hmm. um, that ass is becoming a diss before our very eyes. Uh, so no, I don't think it is. But I don't know if I can think of a better one. <laughs> so <laughs> a default win, yeah, for uh, Thomas Hobbes for that big ass and Thomas Hobbes and his big ass. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that email. I like having an excuse to talk about Mass Effect so so late, so late in the day. Daniel writes, Crates! On last week's episode, Graham, Alex and Marsh briefly mentioned the idea that early access games can be driven in a certain nebulous direction, roughly moving away from Mass Appeal due to the types of players drawn to these games, essentially players who don't mind precise details, lack of polish, bad UI, etc. Can you elaborate on this idea? Do you have examples of early access games that were driven this way? Daniel in Iowa, P.S. What randomizer do you use to decide who appears on each episode? Well, to reconstitute the idea from last week, I mean, you've summarized it pretty well, really. I don't know how much elaboration is required. It's just the idea that when when early access games launch and get their head of steam uh, early on, they assemble a self-selecting audience who do not mind those things that are not yet finished in the game and perhaps also acclimatize the audience to those non-finished aspects so that they don't then either want or demand them uh, as the game gets continued to develop. And early access is a great way of people getting feedback about their games. And if that feedback Mm. doesn't then include improvements that would normally have been made in order to reach a final launch, those developers may conclude that those improvements are not necessary. Um, and I do think you see this in, in uh, a fair number of early access games. I'd be hesitant to call specific examples of them out because obviously I don't have insight into those processes um, and it may, may constitute terrible, terrible slander. <laughs> I think, yeah, I'm struggling for receipts here as well. But I think maybe to continue an analogy that has proven very fruitful, when you're building a game, you do have a sense of your the audience you're building it for and you have to identify those audiences uh audience or audiences 
Mm. And then you have to make some bets. You have to place some bets about where that's going to go. And um, uh, and this bet, like, or this this conception of your audience could be configured, shall we say? This is a huge skeleton, huge skeleton of a baby. <laughs> and the moment the moment you open those floodgates, that baby is going to be pumped icing bag style, full of human goo, and. <laughs> Depending on the relative completeness of the massive baby framework, you're either going to have that, you're either going to have it not fill up, you're going to discover that there are leaks, or you're going to discover that that willful human goo uh, wants to uh, attach a shape or prioritize parts of the baby skeleton that uh, you weren't expecting. And suddenly you've got lobster claws. (laughs) Right. This is how the Reapers ended up as lobsters. They entered early access with their Reaper design and people were like, we fucking love lobsters. Who cares about babies? Right. And they ended up as a race of lobsters. Yeah, they had all these stretch goals. In a sense, what you see in Mass Effect 2 is the product of a kind of spin-off group of like the original kind of Reaper R&D team who still have a bit of a chip on their shoulder that dev resource wasn't applied to their big baby idea, which was, you know, it's, it appears in a bunch of the early screenshots, it's in a bunch of the early scoping documents, and yet it's one of those things on the way that maybe not didn't receive any negative feedback, but it just didn't receive any attention. Um, and and as such, it was deemed not important. And the, they lament the uniformity of the product they subsequently created, i.e., a timeless fleet of lobster monsters, <laughs> uh, which could have which could have had a much greater range. And incidentally, you know, they've now created effectively a project management pipeline that takes whatever alien race it is that's being absorbed, jellyfish people, birdmen, uh, all of them, and through a process of individually benign streamlining decisions and through a set of uh, principles overly codified as part of quite an aggressive audience profiling system, you end up with the lobster monster again. What I'm saying is that um, there is a, there's a, there's an art to knowing, I think when to start letting your audience dictate the shape of the game and where that line is best drawn because i do think there's a point that if you don't do that early enough then you miss out on a lot of stuff because audiences are very good at telling you what kind of game you want and while it is a self-selecting group i do think to some extent if you're lucky enough to release a game that has a self-selecting group of players provided it's large enough to keep your the lights on then then you're kind of winning already (laughs) so trying to do what you can to expand whatever appeal that group is perceiving is not necessarily exactly a bad thing either so in defense of the reapers after they had (laughs) such success and after they they found that that big lobster really resonated with people they were also right to pursue that because rather than to doggedly you know pursue pre-existing idea passionately held as it might be that you could simply make fetch happen and convince an audience of people that actually what they wanted was something completely different. In this case, a big baby, big robot baby. Mm. Does that make sense? Yes. But also, no. I think the thing is interesting. I am not to try and shake my brain free of whatever the fuck just happened a bit. Like, (laughs) I do, you know, I think, I mean, we were talking about it earlier with, um, uh, thingy right um mm. phasmophobia that like i suspect that player base is going to have a tremendous influence on how that game develops and actually i think that's kind of likely to be a very positive thing 
because they've got the, the tremendous success that they've had and the kinds of stories that they see people react to on Twitch. Like in a game like that, which as you said earlier, where the Twitch players basically teach people the optimal way to play what is otherwise quite a ropey thing, um, it kind of feeds back the other way where the kinds of things that, you know, designing for Twitch at this point is necessarily also the best marketing decision you can make and probably the best way to furnish fun for players because it's all kind of becoming one thing, right? All of that energy is amalgamating in, in a single entity. It is being pumped, if you will, <laughs> in the same direction. <laughs> well, fuck. <laughs> Why aren't there any other analogies for anything? <laughs> Ah, God, I feel like I, I am, I am spent of juice. I like that. I like that Daniel did ask us to elaborate on this idea and I don't know if I have done that. <laughs> we should, uh, so the, the randomizer that decides who appeals in each episode is simply, um, who responds to an email, which is the great, uh, social experiment of our age, I think. Honestly, <laughs> it does seem very random whether people will answer it or not. <laughs> <laughs> but somehow, for just about every week, someone does. Indeed. And it's you. <laughs> <laughs> Used to be me, so I know how this goes. Well, shall we? Um, yeah. Shall we put this lobster shaped podcast to bed? Uh, let's put this baby into space. Hmm. Those were all the questions that we had time for this week. But you can send us more questions to our question bucket at questions at com, Or you can tweet us at Creighton Crowbar. We don't read the tweets. <laughs> <laughs> we forget every time. Uh, yes, and you can also uh, listen to these podcasts at YouTube if you wish. The address for that is youtube.com slash crowbar. Uh, you can throw money at us if you wish, patreon.com slash crowbar, Or you can join our Discord community, uh, the link for which is on our website, crowbar.com. It's a very nice Discord community. Uh, shout out to the uh, Creighton Kitty sub-channel, uh, which is very nice. Uh, sort of shout out to the politics sub channel, which is obviously <laughs> deeply depressing. Um, but the other day, it did feature a very uh, extensive discussion on how fast Americans would need to fuck in order to overpopulate their landmass to the point with which nuclear fusion would occur. <laughs> Although the various participants in the discussion were weren't quite clear on whether this would be a good or a bad thing. <laughs> Are you saying with sufficient goo we can create <laughs> a huge baby? Ah, <laughs> uh, uh, that's it. Ah, uh, I've been a huge baby. I've been a huge baby. <laughs> Hang on, no, together we've been one huge baby. That's how this works. That's how this works. <laughs> goodbye. Uh, goodbye. Get out of the gulag. Do your duty. <laughs> Give these wankers a proper jeering. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
do you want to do you want to introduce what we're doing? Yeah. Hang on. So we realized that we forgot to say thanks for listening, everybody. And technically we should be allowed to do that because it's a stupid thing that doesn't make any sense. But at the same time, it feels real bad that we didn't do it. So we're going to do it now. Okay. Correct.